Well, folks, you've tried it all. You bought Bitcoin and didn't make you happy. You got a lot of whey protein and you're big now, still not happy. But there's one thing you haven't tried. No, not antidepressants. It's New Polity Magazine, one of the greatest magazines to give hope for the future out there today. Please subscribe. Hello, everyone. Welcome to New Polity Podcast, the greatest podcast since sliced bread. I'm here with Jacob and Nathan um, with another episode of Good Cities. And just to summarize a little, we are here because, shockingly, we have found that we are all moving towards a great city in the sky, the heavenly Jerusalem. And by grace, we are able to incarnate that heavenly city here on earth. And that's what we're about, turning our little Jerusalems into a little more heavenly Jerusalems. Um, We've spoken a little bit about the difficulties, especially about uh, the effects of the automobile, and really the effects of um, the philosophy of liberalism in terms of how it um, um, dictates the way we design and build cities and the effects of some of our, of our sort of founding laws, um, especially in terms of the way we have mapped out our country. Um, and you might think it's all negative, but these boys, they tell me that they have some solutions. And today what we're going to talk about is a little little bit about planning and the idea of planning our way out of this disaster. And I will say, from the get-go, it seems like you have a hard task ahead of you to defend the plan as the answer. Uh, why? Well, because it seems like we are absolutely inundated, drowning even, in an excess of plans. Uh, and that if there's anything that seems to be problematic is that Everyone has a plan um, for the city, also for our neighborhoods. And we'd rather like, it seems to me, people to stop planning for a moment. Start doing uh, <laughs> Or just, you know, leave us alone as the current ethos seems to, yeah. seems to go. So within this, within this climate of sort of civic exhaustion with development, with growth, um, with the desire for people to just sort of stop uh it seems like a a tough tough time to make a a case for planning but we're gonna try yeah you're nothing if not up for a tough time so so i'm kicking it to nathan because this has been the the ritual of this podcast yeah so i want to start out by framing this with a comparison that we were kicking around earlier looking at the city as a farm Mm mm-hmm uh, on a farm, you're you're given a piece of land. You take a look around. You see how the land lies, which areas get the most sun, where things are already growing, and you start to use that information to decide what you're going to plant, where you're going to keep your animals, <clears throat> etc. And as your farm grows, it will hopefully bring forth abundance, and that abundance needs to be directed towards its proper end, whatever that is. Sometimes it'll be to feed the family next door, but sometimes it'll be to, uh, you know, it'll go to seed and you can use that to increase the amount you've planted for the next year. Cities grow in a similar way, at least ought to, where a city is formed through whatever cultural or market forces brought all these people together. And naturally, over time, a city will grow, Mm -hmm. usually through children, Mm -hmm. bringing forth new generations. 
even if if there's no you know outputs or inputs from from other cities. And so as this city grows, the question becomes, what do we do with this abundance? How do we direct the new abundance for the good of all? Mm-hmm. Um, I think it's it's a helpful comparison because what we see today are plans that are either brought in from above, mm-hmm. either you know a state level or out-of-state developers where a plan is being implemented in a top-down manner. Somebody's coming in and saying, this is what your city needs. Right. And it would be similar to somebody coming on your farm and saying, you know what you really need to do is you need to have uh, all of your cows need to be milked by machines and all of your chickens need to be in these automated coops. And uh, I, I promise you, it'll be good if for you. If you don't do it, you're not going to be able to keep up with the market. Exactly. Yeah. We, we promise it'll be good for you. Yeah. And in a certain sense, by the measure of the economy, probably is going to be good for you. You're going to be making a lot of money. You're going to be keeping up with the cash economy and everything. But you'll look at your your land and suddenly you won't even recognize it anymore because Mm -hmm. instead of a field where you were doing rotational grazing, now you have a giant metal barn where the cows never see the light of day. I think this this analogy is really good as well because it talks about the the farm has now been dominated by a bunch of off-farm inputs that Mm -hmm. don't belong properly to the farm then. I mean, especially heavy industry, the farm doesn't even own they're leasing these mm-hmm. giant combines that if they don't make their payments could be taken away. Mm-hmm. And then the flip side of that is people just want to be left alone. They, they see this yeah. being imposed from above and yeah. the natural reaction is to say, stop. Mm-hmm. Everything needs to stop. We need to stop building. I don't want to see any more row houses. I don't want to see any more you know, bougie soap shops. I just want everything to stop and freeze for a little bit. And and this is also dangerous. And think about what would happen if you did this on a farm. Think about what would happen if you woke up one morning and say, you know what? I like everything on this farm exactly the way it is. And nature itself would would laugh at you Mm -hmm. and say, (laughs) you fool. Everything is going to continue to grow. Yeah. Whether you like it or not. And if you do not direct that growth and cooperate with that growth and co- and co-create with God yeah. to manage that growth, yeah. you will end up either with your fields full of weeds or your cows running amok. It'll be chaos. Now, when we first start building cities, and it's difficult to imagine this sometimes, but in America, we do have examples and even sometimes photographs of early, very early cities being built. Um, It doesn't really seem like people are planning. You know, they might plan where they're, where exactly they are to some extent. Um, But the kind of building that seems to happen at the beginnings just seems very different than the kind of building we do now. Can you speak to this? Yeah, so... There is a certain amount of planning, but it's done in a more haphazard way, and it's usually done through infrastructure investments. In the early stages of a city, infrastructure investments are what control growth. 
Um, and this is still the case, but we've, we've overlaid that with this whole legal system and, and planning document and system and, and things like that. But if you look at a, a city, you know, westward expansion, you, you put in a rail stop and all of a sudden a town starts popping up around it. Well, the first thing that's going to happen, the first thing that has to happen is that rail railroad stop. Mm. And that's the the key for people to come to this place. And then once they come here, they say, you know what this this place needs is a saloon. Mm-hmm. Oh, it needs a barber. You know, people see needs and they rise up to meet them. But early on, it's such a small community. And it's taking up such a relatively small area that it can be done in this kind of haphazard way. But as it grows, that community will have to come together and say, if we want this to work properly and not in this kind of haphazard fashion, we're going to have to sit down and say, where's our next road going? Sure. Can we plan this road? Should it go north, south, east, west? Where's our water coming from? How are we going to deal with our waste? Mm-hmm. You're immediately confronted with the need to plan at some level. As cities have grown further and further and as the economy around development has grown more complex and more speculative those plans have been less a community coming together and trying to determine the next best step and rather it's become how do we open up areas for development how do we bring in new developers new money how do we attract all of these inputs into our city yeah. and what are the legal and infrastructure pieces that need to be in place to accommodate that rather than saying, what is the next need of this city that needs to be met and who, if anybody in the city can rise up to meet it. Yeah. And only if that has all been exhausted, do you look outside the city and say, Hey, I know a buddy in the next <laughs> city over, he yeah, might yeah, be able yeah. to come over and help but, us but out. What, 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 what made that switch? Cause it seems like there's no, so it doesn't seem like there's anything inherent in the vocation of city building. That mm-hmm. means that one fine morning you wake up and say, you know what, making decisions about our own city is not for us. Uh, mm-hmm. let's, let's have other people do it. Let's accept the master plan of others and submit to it. Because this does yeah. seem to be like the reason why people have developed this sort of reactionary, uh, you call it uh, nimbyism, right? Not yeah, in my not backyard. in my backyard. Yeah, it's great. Mm-hmm. Um, the, the desire to just freeze everything in amber. Go build and it somewhere else. Exactly. You never want to see a change all. in the neighborhood. Yeah, I mean, it, it makes sense given given some of the horrific sort of mm-hmm. largely it's, apartment It's a buildings. reaction against... You ever notice how like no matter what the thing is, it always ends up as an apartment building? Because it's always like <laughs> we have this great new development plan for your old mill or brewery or thing. And it's like, everyone holds their breath and they're like apartments. <laughs> and I was like, anyways, but what happened? What happened? Well, we live in America. And so that happened. Yeah. Well, well, no, um, this is what we spoke about last time with the city and the land episode and we were quoting from uh, the Seven Ranges, Will Hoyt's book, yeah. and understanding how America really, in, in a new way, other than anyone else um, in history, was able to come up with a new way of commodifying land, um, purely based just on um, the area, not concerned about 
quality and quality of conditions, resources, um, land became incredibly easy to trade and sell. And so mm. what we have is when we have when we have communities being grown in America, you have tension between um, you know, fascinatingly, it's the rail stop, it's the railroad, which is a profit-seeking business, which is mm -hmm. able to commodify that, relies on the commodification of land to be able to grow, bringing families mm -hmm. to these new areas. And these families, for the most part, are just that, families who are going to be people, grow, have a future together. But you have this, uh, you have this interest other than the community itself, mm -hmm. which is also playing a big part in the determination of its future. And so the interest being that anyone from anywhere can legally buy property without having any stake yeah, in the community. That's something itself. It's, it seems, mm -hmm. I mean, if you're an engineer, uh, in my previous job, I was an engineer in Pittsburgh doing design work in New York. Right, it's very common for us to do across the state and in, in, in across the states, and increasingly even firms doing international work. Oh, absolutely, right? and and it's it's just foul the way that cities often are are submissive to this. I remember whenever we had some, you know, Dollar General that wanted to come into town. I mean, this is is great because in Steubenville, like it's you know. It's not like, oh no, we're worried that some some bougie uh, apartment complex is going to ruin the flavor of the neighborhood. It's like, oh no, the Dollar General is coming. It's going <laughs> to take away our empty lot. Well, you're not, you're but, not uh, wrong though. <laughs> but they would always speak of it as, well, it's a national concern. That became like a a sort of a phrase. Like the fact that it came from the nation was itself a sort of sign of almost recognition of our otherwise podunk town. Hmm. Like we've been recognized by the nation, and and I think this is the inferiority complex of a lot of towns that they people within it need because we live in such a, a national um, state of mind where we really are Americans and we only have a sort of secondary I, I think I mentioned our relation to our town that our, yeah our cities can our cities can feel like just permutations of America well I think that they in some ways there's a legal regime that tries to make it so mm -hmm. I mean spoke about this right even though it's the case that historically communities of love have developed according to the needs that they, they see in each other and their children, at some point that becomes reappropriated as a grant or a gift or an allowance mm -hmm. from a state that really constitutes your city. And you yeah. do become a kind of permutation of America. And unfortunately what this has meant is not that you have everything you want from the feds as much as you have subways. So, to, sorry. So, to get to the point, the point is that, like in our town, it's a big piece of property that's a big problem because it's always falling apart, um, and it's owned by a Taiwanese gentleman who lives in New York City. He yep. hasn't been here, I think, in thirty years, uh, and this is normal. Um, so many of the steel mills around Steubenville are owned by foreign, or like, yeah, Weirton Steel, I think, are, is owned by foreign interests. Uh, there's uh, Mingo, it's owned by yeah, some people in India, mm -hmm. and then there's a few things owned by in China, by Chinese. Um, so it's a pretty extreme example, but I think everyone can say, yeah, there's something about America where um, land, because it's viewed as private property inherently, and because it was very early on seen as having nothing to do with the inhabitants yep. and the 
and the qualitative reality that preceded our mapping of it into squares, that this sort of original sin brought us to a place where it's difficult to say, well, why shouldn't someone simply own mm-hmm. 7,000 acres somewhere they don't live in the way that they own a car that they're not driving right now? Mm-hmm. Um, it, it, it kind of flattens everything and says, well, it's, it's all private property. It's all private property. Let's yeah. be consistent here. Mm-hmm. And so it seems like what you're saying is the change of, of the attitude mm-hmm. towards planning has largely been defensive. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and this is where I'll bring in, um, I guess, the, I mean, this is, you've heard the story before, if you've been within urbanist spaces, yeah. but this is where um, we have the reality of uh, modern use-based zoning or Euclidean zoning. Um, Euclidean zoning is not based off of Euclid, um, the mathematician, but um, the city of Euclid in God's own Ohio is you. Hell yeah. Yeah. So what what happened here? Well, pardon? Nothing. What happened here? In 1926, Euclid is a um, small village that is um, north north of Steubenville. It's um, on the outskirts of Cleveland. And there was Amber Realty Company, who owned 68 acres of land and wanted to expand the industrial might of Cleveland, continuing, uh, continuing into now Euclid. And Euclid saw this and did not want that development built. They wanted, as the phrase often used, to maintain the character of the village, the neighborhood, etc. There's a very good desire in this, um, at least in the desire of there is a people here. Yeah. There is a community here that does have a particular way of life. Yes. It might be rather unparticular because it's America. Because it's Ohio. Because it's <laughs> Ohio. Fair enough. Um but there is a, a way of life um, and a community that would want to be protected. And realizing that, you know, building industry like this doesn't just change land. It changes, you know, people coming into the town. Are they just going to hire, you know, are they just going to hire everyone in Euclid? Or are they going to be bringing in and bringing in people from all across the ain't, nation? To ain't staff that in? just the question? Man, I tell you, a tale as old as time. Mm-hmm. Just the other day, they were arguing West Virginia about putting in one of those Bezos-funded battery plants. And there was like one guy, Patrick McGee, American hero, saying, hey, maybe we should uh, see if they're actually going to hire West Virginians or if this is just, you know, yeah. cheap land, you know, chapter 17 in a story that just keeps going on and on. And yeah. um, no one listened to him. But So what So what is Euclid to do? Because yeah. in the current understanding or in the understanding at the time, it's, Amber Realty owns the land. Yep. Mm-hmm. They can do what they want with the land. Yep. They own it, yep. right? They don't have to think about what the land is in relationship to and the place that it's being built. Um, so Amber, in front of me, Euclid put up zoning codes of um, segregating uses from one another, basically saying you can't build this industry here. It needs to meet a certain height requirement. And Euclid, or pardon me, Amber Realty got quite mad because this uh, did not allow them to build something that would help them turn a profit in terms of industry. So they did the great American thing and sued. <laughs> um, this made its way all the way up to the Supreme Court. And the Supreme Court ruled in favor of Euclid, saying that it is within the policing power of the village to be able to impose these zoning ordinances to direct the growth of the community. Based. And um, this sounds good, doesn't it? What has happened is that Euclidean zoning has become the launch point for 
pretty much any city now today. Yeah. So this was in 1926, right, right, where right. a little under 100 years later, um, every city now has a very comprehensive zoning plan. Yeah. And we can get into the weeds on this. Zoning is different than building codes. Mm -hmm. um, like Zoning does not determine um, how you build. It can de determines what, what you build. build. It's correct. Yeah. So, and and it's gotten increasingly complex over the past hundred years. So when Euclid was passed, you look at old zoning maps from, you know, a few years after Euclid, more and more cities start to adopt this method of regulation, and you see a pretty simple format saying. He, that recognized pre-existing patterns usually is saying, okay, here's the residential area, yep. here's the commercial area, yeah. and here's the industrial yeah. area. And never a, the, a zoning map would be like four or five uses yeah. tops. And yeah. so they'd be open to some interpretation. Like what does residential mean? Well, it could mean a single family house or it could mean a triplex or a perfect six or any number of different residential types yeah. could fit within that zone. Yeah. But over the past hundred years, it's gotten ex incredibly detailed to the point where most land in American cities is zoned R1, which means you can only ever build single family detached houses. Gotcha. And think about what that means for a family. Um, and you're a, you're a, a family with seven kids and so you need a big house and so you buy this you know 4,000 square foot house and your kids are running all over the place and it's great but then as they grow up the kids start to move out and you're left with two people in this house that is way too big for them but there's a lot of memories there mm -hmm. and so you want to stay <clears throat> but what you're not allowed to do is divide that house up into a duplex or a triplex and say you know what um, our neighbor, Mrs. Smith is getting pretty old. Maybe she wants to move into the spare bedroom and we can help her out. Or, mm -hmm. you know, Johnny just came here for college. He mm -hmm. needs a cheap place to live. We'll rent him a spare bedroom. Mm -hmm. You can't do that because you're zoned R1, which means you can only do single family detached housing. Yeah. And that's all it can ever be. Um, and, the examples go on and on. I mean, there's zones for townhouses, there's zones for duplexes, there's zones for multifamily housing, there's zones for big box stores and little mm -hmm. box stores. And mm -hmm. um, if, if you look at any given zoning code in your in your city, you're probably going to find at least a dozen different zones. Every, if not more. every city, unless um, unless you live perhaps in an unincorporated area or some, um, yeah, like. Some cities don't have zoning, but you can look up, you know, type in your name, type your city's name in or your village zoning. Sometimes you'll find a nice uh, interactive GIS map. Other times you're just going to find a old, uh, almost plat map. PDF. PDF uh, of variable quality, right? But that'll just have your zones listed. And then you can go and from the zone that looking at your, you know, a property that you'd be interested to see what could be built there, you go to your cities, often called codified ordinances, and it's in the codified ordinances where you see what requirements you have to be able to meet in order to build there. Mm -hmm. um, it, it's fascinating because th that example you gave, first of all, it's basically 
now within the American cinematic universe to have an antipathy between developer and city. Yes. Right. You know, that's a movie. We've seen that movie many times. And because of that, I think we can lose the shock value of the fact of that antipathy. It's very similar within like, you know, um, the, the history of, of capitalism where you have a growing antipathy between capital and labor. And then mm-hmm. you have the Pope saying things that sound just totally high in the sky, like, well, capital and labor should have friendship and harmony mm-hmm. because they need each other. Uh, but then what we actually end up doing is sort of through, through the kind of modern union, um, just cementing the antipathy. It's like, yeah. well, let's make it a zero sum game and yeah. then arrive at this kind of equilibrium point where we would both like to kill the other person and take all their money, but we've kind of created peace by virtue of the stalemate. <laughs> very similar sense it's like a really good desire from the city and not i mean in this particular case of euclid i don't i don't know amber's intention but the general desire to do things and to change things is not bad and mm-hmm. we're gonna talk more about that but the result has been the action and the reaction have kind of cemented antipathy where the very thing you would expect would be the lifeblood of a city in its continuity through time, which is to renew itself through new building, mm-hmm. becomes the threat. Mm-hmm. Yes, and so the zoning tries to freeze the city, and at the same time, the development tries to change the city, but not as a kind of community that that values sort of the continuity of the city, but as a sort of zero sum game of self interested right. parties. It, you, what happens is, and it's the same thing with the unions. You've replaced systems of custom and subsidiarity and solidarity. And as those break down, you replace them with this legalistic mechanistic Mm -hmm. code Mm -hmm. to preserve some semblance of peace, but it's artificial. Totally. And and this is, again, we should never be surprised when we end up replacing a system that relies on virtue with a system that relies on coercion, that is to say law with the threat of police force at the end of it. Mm -hmm. Because this simply is the anthropology of liberalism playing itself out, which is to say that we are fundamentally depraved um, and and there isn't hope for grace in Mm -hmm. this world like that that making of our cities more like heavenly Jerusalem, it's, it doesn't happen. <laughs> and so the best that we can hope for is to mitigate the levels of violence that we will otherwise kind of inevitably commit against each other. Mm-hmm. And so you live in these worlds where it's like, there's just no good guys here. Yeah. Um, and that's, and that's hard, but I want to consider the possibility that all of that stuff is baloney. And that if you look back at that, that initial building phase, or even back to your understanding of the, the city as a farm, you can see that anything that lives lives through changing. Mm-hmm. I think I think it was Chesterton that said, you know, only a, a dead thing can swim again, or a dead thing goes with the stream. Only a living thing can swim against the stream. Mm-hmm. Like, um, and the life of cities is made up of families. Mm-hmm. Now, the family produces children, and children set the natural pace of change for a people as they're trying to be a city, namely a people who are together seeking the perfection of life. Okay. Now, 
what happens is when a child comes, it's the it's the origin of newness within a society. So I like to imagine, well, what would happen if there are no children? And then we all just like lived on and on and on and on and on. Okay. Well, we would probably build kind of like America tries to build. Um, only it wouldn't be bad because it would be fitting to our natures, right? If you're if you're at age three thousand and your your beard is half a mile long, incredible. You are gonna build the one place you need. Like you have figured it all out. There is no like surprise at year three thousand seven hundred that's coming because there's no newness in the world, right? Mm-hmm. Okay, so then you can imagine like you know what? Maybe we could actually pull off the whole suburban development. Just this is just build it perfectly for exactly what you want and set codes in place so that it never changes because it's for unchanging people. Mm-hmm. Now, the only difficulty is that we well, don't and live at that, that point long. you wouldn't even need code. <laughs> All right. Because you are an unchanging people. I, yes. It, it it shows the contradiction here that we're trying to build a code yeah. that keeps our cities unchanging for a changeable people. Right. So the, and I think what, it's not it's important the code doesn't just keep the cities from not changing. It permits a it permits a universally approved type of change, sure. Which right. doesn't yeah. allow it doesn't allow for um, right relationship to subsidiarity, and with that, like particular people discerning their personal vocations and yeah. how they are to love the city. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, and I think that with with children, so you can imagine a situation where you. With an early city building, it's very obvious that children do set the pace of change because you have children, and then number one, you need to give them bedrooms. And so the first thing that you have to have is an expandable house. So like you have to be able to build onto your house in ways mm-hmm. in which you are free to do. Um, and then you're going to uh, move into, as time goes on and the children have children, you're going to need to expand for the sake of what is now a really dead institution, but used to be very common, which is intergenerational mm-hmm. families living together. And that's where something like a prohibitive um, R1 code is really going to damage this is grandma and grandpa living with the, with to, the family. To that point you made of if we're the 5,000 or the 3,000 year old society, we build everything to without changing. This is a, a real characteristic of modern development is that everything is built to the climax condition. Mm-hmm. And when you look at a suburban development or a strip mall, it's not going to change for 25, 30 years. The only things that will change in your suburb are the color of the houses. Maybe someone gets a, a new roof, uh, a new mailbox, yeah. right? They're not going to be building on an addition to the house, or if they do, it might just be a sunroom or a porch. Mm-hmm. And this is um, this is in part due to the actual construction of the house, but the zoning codes that do not allow you to build extensions. The the term is accessory dwelling unit or ADU, is what you could build onto your houses. And you look you look at historic houses, um, often pre nineteen fifties in those streetcar suburbs, and you can see um, sloped off of the back of the house where the the original wall was. Yep. And then the first slope for an additional bedroom. Yep. Then the second slope, you know, you see maybe either two or three additions. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Which also, I mean, it, it speaks to, and all of this is tied together, obviously, but it speaks to the 
communal nature of ownership as opposed to the commodity nature of ownership that mm -hmm. that gives evidence that the boys got together to build the addition right mm -hmm. this this is it's not just possible because the code allowed it it's also possible because in response to our own freedom we developed skills yeah. that enabled us to do that now if you imagine the family um, as setting the pace of change then i think you also describe one of the material reasons why children leave um, town. So the basic structure in American society for the family right now is that you are considered a sort of reproductive unit within a society that's devoted towards production, towards mm -hmm. um, um, making money. And what this means is you spend about 18 years of, of labor and love and life um, and education to produce a child who then somewhat arbitrarily um, in pursuit usually of a, of a job which isn't rooted to any particular place um, moves very far away. And this is considered to be somewhat natural even though it's pretty unique within um, human history. Like if this, if you had described this to like someone living in the Mesopotamian basin, you would assume that this society was going through like like immense plague and, and, and war. If it's like, what do we do? We send our children where we can't find them. Um, but we do this and it's enabled obviously by, by various technologies, et cetera. Um, and one of the things that you guys are opening my eyes to is the way in which the very code of our cities um, habituates us to this sort of life. It's like, if you live in a city in which you're, uh, legally bound um, in in strict ways to, to to abdicate your authority in terms of development. So mm -hmm. so the developer relation is this large scale and um, uh, enmity based relationship that happens at the top. And what you do is you can just obey very small, like you have very little room for change at the bottom. Then when your child is showing interest in, um, you know. Uh, blacksmithing or whatever, or when your when your family is showing interest in you know staying and being near, um, when your grandparents are looking for a place to move, it There's always becomes a constraint. Like mm -hmm. you can't just change what you own in order to accommodate for that. You can't take what's residential and add a, a small business. You can't take what's residential and grow it higher so that there's something on top. You can't necessarily build you know an underground root cellar and tunnel system, which I think is just baloney. Yeah. Uh, but there's, you know, there's a lot that you, that, that, and because of this, it kind of um, habituates us towards the idea, which seems very natural in our society that like, well, at 18, you need to go find your R1 place with your job right. yep. because it, it does not lend itself to the natural pace of change that a family would, would expand to. But if you look <clears throat> at early American city building, it's precisely the expansion of families that are setting the pace of turning essentially residential life into a, a city proper, mm -hmm. right? So if you allow a certain degree of freedom, like it's not just that people build, it's that they tend to build cities. People, people operating in subsidiarity and solidarity will rise to meet the needs that are yeah. evident in their community mm. through that growth. Yes. Through bearing children, you, you have a new need in front of you. Where is this child going to stay when yeah. he's ready to leave this house? Hopefully he stays near. 
Yeah, and but if sometimes there's nowhere, if there's nowhere for them to live, they're they're obviously not going to stay in town. Yeah, I mean, yeah. Sometimes we read the Bible verse and and we interpret it to justify American life. For like a, a this Which is why. Verse? I, sorry, this is why a, um, a man leaves his father and mother oh, and right. to yeah. his wife. Huh. Yeah. And we have this idea that that means it's all R one housing and uh, housing prices are too expensive because <laughs> well, they don't have any missing middle housing. So you got to cling to your wife. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I mean, and it is true, and I and I always have to hedge here. Because it's not the case that I'm saying there isn't like also a natural propulsion mm. to to separation. I mean, this right. is something that's very very beautiful. That the family is like an anti-tyrannical cell, or at least you can consider it like this. That whenever mm-hmm. it amasses power unto itself, because it's in love, like everyone's kind of in love with each other. The parents are in love with the kids, and the kids hopefully love each other <laughs> on some level. Um, then whenever there's an accumulation, distribution is natural to it. It's not mm-hmm. like, a, oh, I have to share with my children, damn it. <laughs> it's like, no, you know, it's what you want to do. Yeah. Okay, so, so and, leaving and, and distributing happens. In, in so many stories from Scripture, there is that element of leaving. Yeah. And, and going to kind of seek your fortune, find a wife, et cetera. Yes. But there's, there's almost always an element of return, totally. too. At the yeah. end of the story, it's okay, comes back and mm-hmm. dwells. Tobit and such. Yeah. Yeah, yeah no, absolutely. Dwells with his family once again. Well, and, and we're always speaking about a pre-automobile age. And so we're, we're talking about establishing um, new homes that are that are not that far away. Like it's not like it's not like right. leaving and so so you can only reach each other through high capital intensive modes of transportation yeah. and communication. It's like walk down the street. Yeah. We're talking about having the freedom to be who you are and to yeah. not be a sort of appendage to a power source that's like the father and mother. You right. leave the father and mother, you distribute that power. The, the land grows with it and gets better with it. And so the system that we have now also, I mean, it prevents this sort of growth, but it also habituates us to this mode of viewing land and, and neighborhoods as a commodity. Mm-hmm. Because if a neighborhood cannot grow to accommodate these extended families, then what happens is you get these neighborhoods where, well, that's the neighborhood you live in. When you have kids, right. yeah, and then when you're done having kids, you sell your house and downsize to another part of town that's inhabited by other people who have just retired. Yeah, and, and then you and hmm. you don't stay rooted in any one place. You just see each, not just the house as a commodity, but the neighborhood itself and, is a commodity, and it becomes a, it's oh. that particular type of neighborhood. This is a family neighborhood. This is a this is a retired community. Yeah, yeah. this is where the houses all look a certain sort of way. You know. This is where the houses are walkable, like walkability itself. As it becomes much as, a commodity. As much yeah. as we talk about how good it is, um, and you know, somehow sometimes this is the perspective you might need to go in order to get these things built to build a walkable community as a sort of market niche or niche. Pardon me. Um, the problem you face, though, is the people who are coming to this development are also just coming from with a consumer mindset, mm-hmm. um, often because you're having to build to climax conditions. Um, you're not able to, uh, you're not able to actually invest the people who are living there. Also, perhaps themselves because they are so transient and are intending to live there. You know, if it's a hip, walkable development, yeah. you might not have a lot of room for 
you know, growing families, but maybe right when you've gotten started this with kids. This is what we do for this season of life. And then once we have kids, we'll move out to the suburbs where we have plenty of land. It, it happens over yeah. and over and over. Totally, totally. This is why, this is why cities get the reputation that they have for being, especially like the more economically successful and hip cities are like, oh, you go into the city and you live there right after college and you have a, you know, fine time going out on the town and going to bars and breweries and all this, you know, the fancy food hall down the street that just opened in the old industrial building. And and that's just what you do for that season of your life. Yeah. And then you leave. And there's no opportunity to build relationships, to build institutions Power. that perpetuate the growth of an actual polity. You know what it's this- like, Nathan? It's like contraception. You got to think about this. Like, because contraception is really, I mean, it's sort of an attack on on the sanctity of marriage and stuff, but it's mostly an attack on power, like and the ability to accumulate power. Because what it does is it it affects us in our vocation as city builders. Because when we say children set the pace of change, what that also means as a corollary is as you have more children, it's necessary for you to take more property and more power and more authority mm-hmm. over your space mm-hmm. so that you can accommodate a change that comes from without. I mean, it's very beautiful, really. It's like it's like we, we talk about sometimes pejoratively and understandably the idea of every man a king, you know, mm-hmm. and every every house a castle. But there is, I think, a way of thinking about it that that's quite beautiful, even if a little romantic, which is that as the children uh, come, then your response is one of increasing um, decision and determination and really planning of your world in accordance with the sort of newness of life that springs up and that really ultimately it's like it's a prayer like you're talking to God through the medium of children Mm -hmm. and now your yard is expanding and now you do have that tunnel system and now you do have that awesome tree for and that's the early stages but now you're talking about a an, another property and now you're starting a business and now you found out that you know what your kids really like is actually construction so you're starting a business with them and this means that you have a big garage where you're putting a lot of the equipment blah 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 that's that is something that um contraception on the one hand is the ability for us to sort of you know enjoy the sexual experience but make sure that the rate of change is firmly within normal bounds. So like we don't need to expect too much change. And you can see how this actually makes us very fit for a heavily zoned world. Mm -hmm. Because if you have, you know, you talk about seven children, talking about 10 or 11 children, all of a sudden like you have major problems and you need to take more authority and have it in order to flourish and now you're up against a legal code pretty in a similar way that you're up against car seat yeah. regulations you're up against car size you're up against road conditions you're up against you you become basically um like okay all i'm saying is that there's a there's this the strong analogy here right where the the zoning is set as if we really had control over the change that's demanded of humanity as new people enter into it. Mm -hmm. And this relates intimately with contraception, which is an active effort to slow down the rate at which we're called to change. That's all I'm saying. Procreative nimbyism. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) 
But I think it's very it's very beautiful because we I mean it sounds like we're talking on the one hand just about um, you know laws and and sort of zoning decisions and but really we're talking about life. I mean this mm-hmm. is why this stuff matters so much. It's like why do we build cities? Like we build cities because we love people. Mm-hmm. And especially men who historically build cities love women. And women, you may have noticed, tend to have babies. And when they do, they in a very profound way need building. They need things to be built. I mean mm-hmm. shelter for sure. I even think that this is like the the nesting urge thing, it's very misunderstood. Because you know what I'm talking about, right? Like when a, it's like a month before the, the baby comes and all of a sudden it's like house project. Yeah. Okay. So so typically this happens within a built, like when we hear of it, it happens within a built suburban environment that has been built to climax, as you say. So there's really nothing to do. Yeah. And so the yeah. nesting urge, as it's called, becomes absurd. I think that's why I got named nesting urge in like the 1950s, precisely because you buy that's a lot something, of pillows, you paint the yeah. room. It's something you, birds do, and so it's not really a <laughs> How human much thing. did you spend at Hobby Lobby? <laughs> well, no, but, it, yeah, but that's what I mean. It's considered as this like bizarre feminine like um, continuity with animal life. And so we like associate it with like, well, you know how women are mostly like birds. Well, they, <laughs> they have bird things that they do. It's just the stupidest thing in the world but we like we just go with it We're like oh, i guess they have nesting urges that makes sense but it's like no that's ridiculous what what is actually happening is that newness of life demands that the world change by, in and through the those who have the authority and power to change it mm-hmm. which means that culture civilization that is the work of city building is predominantly a call it seems to me that comes from women who are going to have children to men who can build. Now, obviously, I'm going to get called sexist for this. Um, I might just take it. Yeah, I'll just take it. So moving on. The <laughs> And one of the reasons I think this is just this is just so this is so marvelous is that you you have to understand the the construction of a regime of zoning that's that surrounds us in its relationship to an attack on the family as the origin of change in society and as the cell of society that dictates the kinds of action of those levels that are higher than it. This is the order of subsidiarity. Mm -hmm. What I mean is like the crisis here is that we try, it's all here. You can think about it this way. Zoning laws are like other husbands deciding on what kind of things are going to be appropriate for the nesting urge of women. Do you see what I'm saying? It's like it's already determined in advance what the change is going to be like mm-hmm. and what's going to be needed. And it comes from a decision that's basically sexless in the sense that it's it's just decided by men. It's decided but, in suits. It's decided somewhere else. And it's not really for the sake it's of It's not for the sake the of the particular. No. Yeah. And I think something that's important to this is... um zoning laws are um, sovereign often to cities. Mm-hmm. So it's the it's the municipality itself yeah. which is able to set their zoning. The zoning is not set at, at the state level or the county. It's set at the city. Um, and But but cities in the scales that they are today um, can behave like many empires. I think this is most immediately shown when cities annex new land. As we spoke 
in the City and the Land episode about cities annexing land to build new development to pay for the old development and the growth mm-hmm. Ponzi scheme. Right, that's changing Either nowadays. Annexing new land or but trying they, to attract an Amazon or a they, Tesla or like. I'm not saying this is bring in. We have to bring in growth. But when they somehow. when they when they also annex land, they do it in such a way as. I think analogous to the way that the United States states annexed land westward, right? Mm-hmm. Um, they, you know, that land now gets its identity from almost the city coming into it in a sort of imperial way, sure. right? Like you could have people move there, people who already live there, but you know, if Steubenville just started annexing land right. for the sake of building a Tesla battery plant, right? Yeah, um, we wouldn't care. We wouldn't particularly care what type of life the residents of that annexed land were living before the vocations that they were cultivating. Mm-hmm. Um, and so zoning, and we Andrew Jones has spoken about this in terms of you know how higher orders of subsidiarity relate to others, where it, the guidance, the higher you go, the guidance becomes more broad yeah. in how those orders interact to the lower. Mm-hmm. And so... I'm not saying that there shouldn't be zoning levels that happen at the scale of the city, yeah. but much more to what um, Nathan was speaking about in you know, the pre, pre-Euclid um, times where you really had those like four zones, um, which could then give general picture to the growth that would happen at the smaller levels of the neighborhood. We, uh, the master planning violates subsidiarity because the city then is painted with one big brush. Neighborhoods are not allowed to develop, both in terms of how uses are separated from one another and, again, how things are built to that climax. You know, neighborhoods just also become a permutation of the city. They lose their particular character. Suburban neighborhoods such a, have such a high turnover rate that a people doesn't develop from them. Um, this is the problem. Well, and it, yeah, and it just seems, I mean, I'm not saying it sounds conspiratorial, but it sounds like a mechanism for um, diffusing power that isn't the natural mechanism of the family. What I mean is you diffuse power because you have a built world that doesn't allow for a family to grow. Mm-hmm. Um, and what ends up is the people that control this system largely are the only ones calling the shots. And And this happens so... As zoning codes become increasingly complex, there's kind of a perverse favor that it bestows upon an outside class that is equipped to understand and manipulate those complex codes. Like if you have a code that is very simple and anybody with a sixth grade reading level can sit down and say, hey, what am I allowed to do on my property? Yeah. Then you have a system in which the zoning exists not as an imposition upon a community, but as a method of protection. Yeah, uh, It's not that the zoning codes are inherently wrong. It's just that as they are now... It's like someone can't build a gas station next to your house. Right. Like that That's the positive protection here. Right. That's not wrong. <laughs> and then to say, but as they grow more complex and as they regulate the minutiae, yes. which is usually introduced with a good intent. Right, totally. But as it accumulates, it becomes so complex that the only way you can understand it is to hire a lawyer yeah. to 
picks through it and find you the exact I mean, loophole that you need to do the an engineer. Right. Well, as civil engineers, yeah. anytime we get a project, the very first thing we do is a, a, a Salda review. Um, what does it stand for? Yeah. I don't call it that, you don't so call it? I don't well, know. Okay, I forgot. That's what we call it. <laughs> Pardon me, I sounded very stupid. We do an ordinance review. Yeah. We do a zoning ordinance review where you, you get a client who says, I want to build something here. Before you do any engineering design, any laydown of pipes, grading, roadways, you are looking at what the city says can be built there. Mm-hmm. And not just what it can what can be built there, but you're having to consider things, and I'll just do a litany here, such as setbacks. So setbacks are... Um, how far are how, you from the street? How far are you from your property lines, yeah, rather? Often, so the front setback is from the street, and then the rear setback is from the rear property line, et cetera. So it controls where your front porch gets to be, basically. Yeah. Basically, can, it's requiring you to have a, a lawn a big front yard. or a buffer, um, not allowing you to build directly up onto the street. Um, this is good when you have roads, right, um, where you don't want things immediately up on the street because roads are meant for going through a place. But in a street, you want to have that enclosed space, right, where you feel comfortable to just walk and be. Say hello to your neighbor on the front yeah. porch, have a glass of tea, So you have setback requirements. How far back or into your property do you have to build? Once you apply your setbacks, you then have your buildable area. So you might own an acre, right? But once you apply your setbacks, you might only have um, 0.8 acres that you can actually build on. Mm -hmm. From that, then, you also have to apply minimum parking requirements. Mm -hmm. What? Yes. What if you don't have a car? Doesn't matter. No, it doesn't matter. Minimum parking requirements are also things held at the, at the city level. They have sovereignty over that. And these are rather archaic laws that I think we'll just give a broad overview on. There's great, great videos about breaking down parking requirement, minimum parking requirements more. But based often, if you're building a house on the square footage of your house or the number of bedrooms in your house, you have to have a minimum number of parking spots, parking spaces there. This is... Um, I have yeah. This is equivalent with sometimes with churches. It's four spaces per every pew. Really? Mm-hmm. It gets extremely specific. Um, in Chattanooga, for a daycare, if you have less than forty-five children, you have one space for every five children plus one space for every employee. And if it's more than 45 children, it's a whole different calculation. <laughs> and it immediately becomes obvious, like. What daycare knows at the beginning of it, like right, when they're right. building it, how many children will be in that daycare 10 years from now yeah. or how many employees they'll have? Like, yes, it's all very so, um, kind of voodoo you've parking now, requirements. You've now applied your minimum parking requirements. And with all the asphalt you need to have on your space, your developable area might now have been reduced to 0. 0.7, 0. 0.65 acres. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you get into things of minimum lot sizes. So you might need to have a uh, a minimum size of property in order for you to develop a a house, and this really was um, I guess anti density tools, so that you need at least an acre for a house, right? When you could design some very clever shotgun style houses that you can do on really skinny, yeah. you know, like far back um, on like like a fourth or a third of an acre, but the city imposes. If you want to build a house, you need to have at least half an acre. If you have minimum lot frontages too, so if you want to build a new subdivision, each house has to have 60 feet fronting the road. 
Gotcha. If you look at a lot of historic neighborhoods, it's like 40 feet. Well, I was just thinking the fact that, you know, what we actually like is none of this stuff. Like what we like to look at is... What we go on vacation to Europe for. Yeah, yes. theoretically. But if we did go on vacation to Europe, <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, what we would do is we go to cities where what we are admiring is the aesthetic beauty that comes with uh, unity and a great diversity, right? Like yeah. what we admire it's, is the fact that when your eye glances over this part and this part and this part, it's not a uniform and that it's obviously the result of small decisions made over a great amount of time mm -hmm. to meet the needs of a people. And the end result is a beauty that none of them are in charge of. Mm. Like mm -hmm. precisely because they were allowed it's to plan. It's a community effort. Yeah. Right, precisely because they're allowed to plan, like the whole is something that exceeds them. Yeah. But where the whole is managed from the top in a way that breaks with subsidiarity, then you don't get to have beauty as a surprise, right. right? Which is really, I think, an essential quality of beauty. And so I wanna... You were beginning to say, as we began to discuss the specifics of some of the specifics of, of um, code, you were beginning to say that this kind of arcane and, and Byzantine zoning system that dives deeper and deeper into the particular lives rather than remaining a universal judge and a protector of people from the commodification of their property. You're beginning to say that this process lends itself to essentially filtering out um, local power mm -hmm. from and favoring um, people with the resources to be mm -hmm. able to hire consulting firms, lawyers, engineers, who can navigate the complexities of code yeah. and who have the capital to basically always be able to get enough of that buffer space to build. Right. Whereas yeah. if you have some little dinky lot next to you, it's like you might want to build, but. So we're in a really, we're in a strange spot right now because we live Which and just seems, operate. Say, it seems counterproductive, right? Like, cause the point of the code is to not favor the outsider. Right. Mm -hmm. Right. That's the reason why we do this is because we say, hey, our land isn't just for sale, buddy. You can't just open up your shop here. We've got laws and, and, and we feel good about that yeah. in 1926. Mm -hmm. And now we're saying, hey, buddy, I can't even read this document. So only someone who can hire a consulting firm gets to build. Right. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> just making sure. That's essentially what happens. Right. Yeah. And so we are in a weird situation because we still are in a culture of speculation and we lack solidarity. We still need that kind of protective element. Yes. It's just that the one that we have right now clearly isn't working. Mm -hmm. And I think part of that, there's, there's a couple different things going on, but one thing I have noticed is basically an abdication of local involvement. And this stems from, first of all, it's complicated. And so a lot of people just don't want to, either don't want to or can't yeah. have, like they don't have the time to actually dive into their local yeah. codes and start to understand them and start to understand how they can influence yeah. them. So part of it is an abdication of power. And then part of it is 
simply the way we have done planning has become so mechanistic and and very quantifiable over time. And that's just not how most people think. Mm. And so what I have seen done somewhat successfully, not entirely, but somewhat successfully, is rather than this process of increasingly Byzantine zoning codes, there is a more organic, more... It's a bit of a fuzzier process, but it's essentially an area planning process where people come together and describe, and usually it requires a consultant to translate whatever these people are saying into something that can actually be actionable. Mm -hmm. And that brings in its own complications, but essentially people come together and describe what kind of neighborhood they want to live in. Mm -hmm. And what people often describe is a neighborhood where I can open a coffee shop. I can open a small brewery. I can build a duplex that is in keeping with the architectural style of the neighborhood, mm-hmm. but I can't, what I can't do is come in and build an apartment building that's five stories tall, even though everything else is one or two stories. I can't come in and build uh, a warehouse. I can't come in and build a gas station. It's this more gut level planning process that can then be applied. And and I've actually seen it where even when a developer comes in from outside that doesn't really know the community, um, it almost, it doesn't force them, but it highly encourages them to actually engage with that local process, engage with the plan that has actually come organically from the people it's supposed Mm -hmm. to serve. So even though those people don't have a lot of money, they don't have a lot of uh, development experience, they don't know how to design and build and finance the amenities that they want to see in their neighborhood, but they have described them in such a way that a developer can come in and yes, they're still seeking a profit. Yes, there's still kind of a break in subsidiarity and solidarity, but it's a step towards recognizing the needs of a community that is there. Mm-hmm and rising to meet them or at least coming in and, and helping them meet those needs. Mm-hmm. I think just to be clear. It's not, not, not just, um, the, the common outside developer isn't, it's not bad that they're um, seeking a profit, but that they're motivated by profit. And so some, sometimes those plans can help and encountering a developer who's purely motivated by profit being like, well, okay, if this is what it's going to take to get a profit, I'm just not even going to do it. I'm not even going to do it. Or you get the ones who are willing to do it. Or, and what what these things allow for as well, when you're focusing on a neighborhood who wants to chart its own vision, then your lands, the land that you're working with becomes smaller. You're not dealing with, you know, 68 acres on the outskirts of town. You're dealing with maybe a historic area that has had its teeth knocked out by that. A bunch of old homes or businesses that have been knocked down and you now have just infill sites. And that can be done by a team of incremental developers, of citizen developers, whose margins for profit is not as big as a, you know, 300, 300 homes per development builder, but three homes, a duplex, a cottage court. The challenge is also making these types of, as it goes, missing middle housing legal to build. It's the Byzantine zoning codes that we have that don't allow them. But... When the neighborhood is able to chart its own vision, 
you will also organically find those people who want to rise to try to build these things. Mm -hmm. And that seems to get more back to families, communities of families who come together, see that growth is happening at a human scale um, and pace. Well, right. And who, who, who want to be citizens in the true sense, which is not just, you know, residents of a city, but, but, belonging to a city they are mm-hmm. members and that means builders of the city um it's like building because it is the primordial vocation given to adam cannot be in a, in a similar way to just tilling and keeping it cannot be the sort of um you offload it province of yeah. of, of of an elite like yeah. it's not to say that the elite can't build <laughs> it's just to say that like that you know, it would be like saying that only only a certain class of people can use their right arm. It's like no, building is what we do. It's mm-hmm. how we know that humans and not apes were here, right? Um, and so it belongs to everyone by birthright, right? You get the capacity to build, you get a body, and you get original sin. Those are the three things you get, <laughs> and then you go forth. Um, so it seems that underlying this is the need for solidarity to begin with because mm-hmm. you know you're describing basically citizens coming together to to zone themselves <laughs> um, or at least to like take advantage of the fact that these laws are always open to the exception mm-hmm. I mean like you can get a variance on anything um, <clears throat> yeah. and you can get anything rezoned if everyone agrees but yeah. that agreement right? It implies when, that you have a community. This is what's fascinating. If you, you know, man, one of the biggest um, biggest nights to bring popcorn to a city council is when there's a rezoning that's happening or a rezoning that's up on the docket because you so immediately see how much your city is made up of people. Yeah. Because what will happen is if you want to develop something, something, you will or develop something and rezone it, there is a radius of uh, that goes out from you that proposed property it's a you know a couple hundred feet radius that then a invitation a often mail invitation has to be sent to all of those uh, property owners mm-hmm. to say there will be a hearing at the zoning board on this date mm-hmm. for the rezoning of property x from r1 to like r2 mm-hmm. or something of the sort and people will show up mm-hmm. and you they will talk mm-hmm. and um kind of what what you see right now is not always, but you can see that nimbyism there. But again, you see how much it is just people. It is your neighbors that ultimately are realizing they're going to be living with what you build. Right. So, so that, I actually, in Chattanooga, I sit on one of the boards that makes recommendations on rezonings and variances and things of that nature. And, and you see it a lot because we do the same process where we mail flyers to people in that radius of this rezoning or this project. And there's a marked difference between the people who are rezoning their property and like without relation to the neighborhood. And then there are developers who come in and say, I've met with the neighborhood. I've talked through their concerns. We've actually changed our plan a little bit. And just in the process of hearing the two different arguments, there's one person saying, this is what I want to do. This is what I need to do to make the money work. And this is the only way I can make it happen versus I've worked with 
the neighborhood. Mm-hmm. I've I've heard these families, and you know, there's never a perfect agreement because it's it's impossible to get perfect agreement between various people at all times. But you start to move in a more human direction. You start to at least recognize the necessity for solidarity. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it makes for better neighborhoods usually. Yeah, absolutely. It seems like the the Christian life is not incidental to city building, but it actually is a sort of ground and prerequisite because only once you've established a love for each other can you act as a whole. I mean, Mm -hmm. Augustine says this all the time. Like um, if, you know, there's things we can call communities that are really just a lot of self-interested people living together, but their power is limited in a certain extent because they can't motivate the action of a people, which is an incredible sight to behold, as Mm -hmm. opposed to the stalemates of individuals Mm -hmm. who all say like, well, they're all fighting for their rights. I'm self-interested. So, and what you end up is basically a lack of creativity because everyone's scared of each other. Mm -hmm. And, virtue which Christ makes possible in our lives is a necessary condition for being able to trust your neighbors that because you're mm-hmm. all working for a common good together and it allows development to become a activity and an authoritative activity of a neighborhood and mm-hmm. of the of the people in it um, as opposed to something that you merely passively respond to as, mm-hmm. you know, no, yes. And I think that this is what we love about, like the kind of pioneer moment in any given uh, life of any city. Or like there's this moment when it really did rely on people mm-hmm. and, and mm-hmm. where they were freely making decisions and you had to trust your neighbor because you were never going to raise that that barn or that roof or that house on your own. It was just too heavy. And so the integration of virtue and solidarity with the actual desire to get things done for yourself, it wasn't like a a self-interested sort of conniving social contract that the moment that you didn't, once the house was up, you can start hating your neighbor. It was like, no, love produces power Mm -hmm. and that power is used for the establishment of a more and more diverse and detailed city that further and further serves the perfection of human life. Um, And that's what we're after, right? Um, So it seems like the, the, it it sounds kind of simplistic, I guess, but like if we can't love our neighbors on the ground in, in sincerity, like we are cut off from the source of our own efficacy as city builders. Mm -hmm. Like we really are. And then what we'll end up doing is simply playing some some role within this current scheme in which, as far as I can tell, you know, we just make pre-made plots of land uh, look pretty for Amazon to build a warehouse, and we hope and we hope to goodness that that'll save us. Right? Yeah. Yeah. Well. So. What else? We're going to be spending some time talking about how we do this, especially in pre-existing 
cities because we are not in a position that we can simply rebuild from scratch based on systems of subsidiarity and 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 solidarity. It doesn't. Yeah. It's often whenever you see, um, you know, some Catholic come out and say, we've bought 150 acres. We're going to make a Christian community. Mm-hmm. You know, it's like any good religious founder doesn't intend to found a religious order. Mm-hmm. Any good city is not intended to be founded as a city. Mm-hmm. You just start living there, making small bets, actually relating to the people there. And then slowly a city gets built. And so I, I agree with Nathan. What we are speaking of is not the, you know, I'm not saying that nobody should try it, but going, not fleeing to the fields, but fleeing to the cities almost and starting where there there is a history there before you. Well, and I was going to make this point. I'm glad you brought up the, that idea of, you yeah. know, we're going to go buy 150 acres and have a Catholic community. I think if you're going to do that, you need to understand that what you're undertaking is city building. Yes. There's, there's no way around it. You cannot bring a community together in that way and expect to, to continue to live as isolated homesteads forever. Yeah. There will be needs that arise that can only be met communal, communally. And the moment that happens, you've taken the first step to becoming a city. And so there needs to be that understanding. I mean, that does that sort of development does actually offer one of the few opportunities in, in America to rebuild cities from the ground up on systems of subsidiarity and solidarity. But it needs to be undertaken without fear of becoming a city. Right. It needs to be undertaken knowing in advance, as soon as we bring these people together, we're talking about building a polity and, when, and, and a polity yeah. ultimately has to become a city. Right. Um, and when you do that, you immediately kind of enter into the eternal in some ways, because you know, your lifetime will not even see the needs that will cry out for the yeah. recognizably civic building portion mm-hmm. of, of, of a city's life. And <laughs> so um, it's maybe the most basic element maybe we should have started the whole podcast with this thought but it if you don't care about what happens after you die to this world then you cannot build and certainly cannot love a city like the only thing that and you makes can't love children either well, that's no. right. <laughs> like all of this relies on the fact that there is something that transcends you that is good for its own sake and for everyone who isn't you and that you want to serve mm-hmm. it. Um, yeah, I just think Yeah, that it's not for our own sake that we build <laughs> yeah, cities. It's yeah. for the sake of our children and our grandchildren and the seventh generation right, after that. Right, I mean, right. mm-hmm. and that's, what, then, that's even, what keeps us from simply just being from the default human condition to be hermits you know it's there is a care that we are called to for future generations that we'll never see and so then planning planning becomes almost a help of um passing on a vocation to Mm -hmm. families um to those generations ahead it's helping invite them into the life that has been prepared for them as um here is what you know it's not a sort of all right you know time for you to finish my legacy. 
very self-conceited view. But instead, we've been, you know, it's your time to enter into this. We've prepared this for you, and you will prepare it for others. Mm-hmm. And there's a history behind it. And um, you get to contribute to the tapestry, to the urban fabric now. Yeah. Sometimes John Paul II would refer to it as the great workbench. Like, mm. you don't, you use all of the labor that has been accumulated before you. Yeah. Mm. But you're in precisely the same condition of freedom. Like, no one ever arrives. You, you've said this quite a few times, that um, a city has to change. Mm-hmm. Um, because living things change. That's mm-hmm. how we know they're alive. And And so it's not the it's not like a a linear inheritance of a patrimony that finally arrived and now you know steubenville shall always be we're not at the end of history you're never at the end of history because you're man man is historical consistent beginning so that seventh generation in freedom is able to determine the next step based on the needs of children who continue to pull humanity into difference and, and, and newness of life yeah at every given moment. So for those of us who are still operating under these more artificial and legalistic systems, we'll be doing another episode talking about steps we can take to start changing because we're not in a position, we can't just get rid of it Mm -hmm. and expect everything to be okay because that would just be chaos and it would open up cities to just massive incredible speculation, speculation yeah. and i mean yeah. yeah you get rid of zoning laws and just Power say like we're going to have our libertarian paradise it's like power fills a vacuum that seeks rather so. yeah. <laughs> yeah what <laughs> it's not going to happen you're you're, no. you're going to live next to people who hate you uh, i mean maybe they won't be there but they'll have their operations <laughs> there mm-hmm. so that's coming uh just for yeah yeah to give a little bit of hope at the end of this yeah well wonderful so Go look at your city zoning laws and see what you find. And most important, comment comment here the the most outrageous minimum parking requirement <laughs> that you see. And most importantly, get to get to meet your neighbors because mm-hmm. you, you don't build solidarity as a sort of um, as a sort of alternative way of getting good zoning laws. You build solidarity by actually loving people, mm. and then you get like all good things. Um, you build good things, city, and then you protect them. Well, I'm just saying, you get the city as a as a fruit. So the, mm. the, the pursuit is still the same. Like you still are called to holiness, to virtue, and to the love of neighbor and God. But when we really allow ourselves to do these things, the fruits that we get are power, solidarity, subsidiarity, and the ability to have beautiful cities. So goodbye. We'll see you next time.